people always have said, oh, she's not a real tech reporter, you know, because she's not covering like Facebook drama or something like, you know, internal Facebook politics or something or, or writing reviews of the iPhone. Like there's this really regressive view of what technology is um, within the media. So a lot of people just still associate tech reporting with reporting on gadgets or reporting on like the business behind IBM or something when actually tech is completely integrated into our culture and our world and our lives and especially with the rise of social media like we need to cover all of that through through this cultural lens and through this deeper look from the user side of technology. I'm Quinta Jurassic and this is the Lawfare Podcast. April 21st, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with a reporter who has carved out a unique beat, writing about not just technology, but the creativity and peculiarities of the people who use it. Taylor Lorenz, a columnist at the Washington Post covering technology and online culture. Her recent writing includes reporting on AlgoSpeak, that is, how algorithmic amplification changes how people talk online, and coverage of the viral Twitter account Libs of TikTok, which promotes social media posts of LGBTQ people for right-wing mockery. We talked about the quirks of a culture shaped in conversation with algorithms, the porous border between internet culture and political life in the United States, and what it means to take the influence of social media seriously, for good and for ill. It's the Lawfare Podcast. April 21st, Taylor Lorenz on taking internet culture seriously. Your bio at the Washington Post describes you as a, a columnist covering technology and online culture, which honestly sounds a little to me like you cover pretty much everything <laughs> these days. Just to start, can you talk to us about how you think about your beat? Yeah, I, I know. It is a funny and broad thing. So I cover essentially how the internet shapes the ways that we communicate and connect with each other. Mostly that means covering social media platforms, but it can also mean, you know, talking about how people use Google Docs as a chat app or, um, you know, I've read a bunch about stories about Zoom early in the pandemic. It's kind of like what's happening online and how people are connecting online or building audiences. Awesome. And so there's a couple of your recent stories that we want to ask you about as demonstrating exactly what you're talking about, which is how the dynamics of these platforms are pretty much the water we swim in these days and impact almost all aspects of society from politics to the very way that we speak. Um, so let's start with that then in your recent piece on AlgoSpeak, because it's just such a fascinating story and great example about how we normally talk about content moderation as sort of there's this ocean of content and platforms just need to moderate it, but it's actually a much more dynamic and symbiotic relationship. So tell us, what does AlgoSpeak mean? So AlgoSpeak means the different words and language we use to essentially evade content moderation filters. As you know, social media platforms have proliferated, um, a lot of them have relied on algorithmic content moderation tools. Um, so they'll sort of automatically mute or downrank content that has certain words. A lot of this is around safety concerns. But, you know, it can also just be very random, you know, and, and have kind of wide reaching effects. So I'll, you know, use, the, for instance, um, you can't say the word dead in a lot of YouTube or TikTok content without suffering some sort of algorithmic hit, like your content won't go as far, because it doesn't seem as, I guess, maybe family friendly or benign. So um, people will say unalive instead of kill, like he unalived himself, or the person became unalive. And a lot of these sort of 
ways of speaking to evade the content moderation filters have emerged as just like slang now because people use them so commonly on the internet. Yeah, I found some of the examples you point to were really striking. Like, I actually had not realized that referring to the pandemic as Panini was something that that came from AlgoSpeak. Maybe I'm, I'm showing my age yeah. here. <laughs> um, how many of these instances, I mean, is it clear why the algorithm is pushing people in a certain direction? Obviously, you gave one about um, dead or I think with a pandemic, you said that it seemed like it was because platforms were trying to limit misinformation. And how many times is it just like, it seems like content is being suppressed and people kind of respond to that even when it's not clear why. Yeah. I mean, I think what's so interesting about all of this is a lot of this sort of like bending yourself in in ways because you think that you're being censored. You might not even be, you know, taking an algorithmic hit. I think there are definitely certain things that we know violate community guidelines, you know, talking about taboo issues, um, sometimes talking about things like rape and or harassment, um, things like that. We, we know that a lot of that those conversations can trigger your content to be taken down. So I think it, it's hard for the victims of certain things or, or racism, you know, to kind of talk about the stuff that they've dealt with without triggering these takedowns because it's like their discussions are actually considered a harmful content by the filters, even though they're talking about what happened to them. So People, yeah, so people sort of try and, and get around it. There are a lot of conspiracies, though. You know, um, sometimes people's videos won't be hitting and they're like, am I saying the wrong word? You know, is there anything that I said that's controversial? Um, and so there's these shared Google Docs that big content creators will trade among each other that have like lists of words that uh, apparently impact the algorithm. We saw a lot of this happen around the adpocalypse, um, which is something that happened on YouTube in 2017 when a lot of big advertisers pulled their ads over concerns of unsafe content. And so, you know, for a time, LGBTQ creators were saying that you couldn't even say the word gay without uh, your video being demonetized or not reaching its sort of full algorithmic potential. So a lot of them began to talk around it. People made euphemisms and it's all based off theories mostly. Yeah, it also highlights the tension with transparency, I think, because, you know, there's, there would be this really frustrating thing of not knowing what is allowed and what is not allowed and, you know, these conspiracy theories that develop. But on the other hand, if you just told people what you were moderating, then th it would put these things into overdrive as well, because then people would be able to evade them more easily. So I think that it's, uh, I mean, I, I do have some sympathy for platforms in this context, because it, you, you, you end up in this sort of cat and mouse game with creators or with, with, with content. And it sort of really highlights how blunt these tools are. You know, we often talk about the, uh, or, or people assume that these uh, platforms are, are puppet masters we, and they talk about, you know, the effectiveness of their technology and their algorithms, but literally sometimes they're just putting the word dead um, on a list and saying, you can't say this, um, which is obviously ridiculous because dead gets said, said in so many contexts, like right now, where it's not harmful. And I think that this is somewhat what people warned would happen as platforms really ramped up their content moderation in recent years, particularly after the pandemic. And I'm curious if this phenomenon that you're talking about has really developed as platforms have become more hands-on. Yeah, they have. I mean, I think this was not a thing as much, right, like 10 years ago, because there weren't all these algorithmic distribution systems. Like you subscribe to someone on Instagram, it was this chronological feed, you know, where you saw their stuff. And content moderation was just so, such a small and kind of a, not a big thing that people were talking about. So there just wasn't as much moderation. They didn't have any of these tools built in. 
But as these platforms have scaled, they're just relying more and more on algorithms because that's the only way they can scale to the size they're at now. And they've tried to protect user safety, which is a good thing, right? Like we want platforms to kind of think about user safety concerns. Um, It's just that they've implemented them often in kind of not the most effective ways. So it's, it's definitely more of a recent thing when it comes to these issues. And so how do the creators feel about content moderation? I think, you know, in talking about content moderation, often examples come up of, of, you know, false negatives. So harmful content made by bad actors that breaks the rules and should have been taken down and and wasn't. But a lot of what you're talking about in the piece are people who are just kind of everyday people who are also affected by these rules. And I imagine might have an ambivalent relationship with them because, you know, some of these rules are are in place to, like you said, you know, prevent racist content, but they're also limiting conversations about racism by people who who experience about it. What what kind of reactions did you see when you were talking to these creators you were reporting on? Yeah, I mean, I think they're all just frustrated by the system because it has no transparency. So they just want, you know, they just want to kind of like work with someone or be able to appeal things, especially during 2020. This was such a problem because there was all of these conversations around social justice and racism. And a lot of them felt like they were being unfairly punished for talking about this stuff. So let's talk a little bit more about why this matters. I think many people might be inclined to, you know, dismiss um, some of these platforms, especially platforms like TikTok and YouTube, which are, you know, by some measures, the largest platforms in the country, but often get dismissed as like kids platforms or dance apps or, you know, DIY videos. I have my own theories about why these platforms often rarely get a mention in conversations about politics, but I'm curious why you think that so many of these things and so many of the things that you report on are often overlooked. Yeah, I think people fundamentally just dismiss a lot of internet stuff as, oh, for young people or for, you know, silly things like dancing, right? Like TikTok was framed as this dance app, this harmless dance app, when it's actually a really powerful and quite quite dangerous in ways, um, you know, social platform, just the way that Facebook is and uh, YouTube and, and all of these. So yeah, I think it just goes back to minimizing things that young people, women and you know, people in in certain marginalized communities care about until it breaks through to like the mainstream sort of quote unquote serious journalists. In tech reporting too, you know, my beat has been traditionally dismissed. People always have said, oh, she's not a real tech reporter, you know, because she's not covering like Facebook drama or something like, you know, internal Facebook politics or something, or, or writing reviews of the iPhone. Like there's this really regressive view of what technology is um, within the media. So a lot of people just still associate tech reporting with reporting on gadgets or reporting on like the business behind IBM or something. When actually tech is completely integrated into our culture and our world and our lives and especially with the rise of social media, like we need to cover all of that through through this cultural lens and through this deeper look from the user side of technology. So much is focused on the businesses themselves. And I like to cover, you know, things from the user side. So how does this affect people? How do people interact with these platforms? And how is it shaping culture? I think a, a very good illustration of why this matters is uh, about a, a piece you published this week on a, a Twitter account called Libs of TikTok. Can you just give us an overview of the, that story? Sure. So Libs of TikTok was this is this super powerful social media phenomenon. I noticed it kind of 
cropping up more and more in the past four or five months as a lot of this anti-LGBT sentiment started to rise up online. So it's a primarily a Twitter account, um, but they're on kind of every platform except TikTok where they've been banned. Um, and what the person does is it takes random private citizens and finds their social media posts, mostly gay people or trans people, members of the LGBTQ community. And it takes, you know, their content and then amplifies it to millions, often framing, you know, misrepresenting them. So it'll take, for instance, a kindergarten teacher telling his class that he came out, that he's gay. Um, It will take that clip. Sometimes it will, you know, take a part of the clip and it will reshare it on social media with commentary saying, you know, this person's a groomer or this person needs to be fired. You know, this account has called basically anyone who is gay sort of implied that they're a groomer um, or a pedophile. Um, they said that there's no place for gay teachers. Um, anyone that comes out to their students, you know, should be fired on the spot. So that's just some of the stuff this account has been saying as it ramps up these attacks against the LGBTQ community. It's incredibly popular. And I wrote about how it's shaping the right-wing media. So the account sort of acts as this like wire service for stories that the right-wing media then pounces on. It it takes these little stories about these private individuals who just posted to their friends on social media, right? On TikTok or Instagram, blows it up out of proportion. And then the next day it'll be, you know, a Fox News story. And these people have been fired. And the account actually brags about getting gay teachers fired. And it's heavily monetized, um, and it's it's this powerful force that's that's impacting legislation as well. Christina Pushaw, uh, DeSantis's press secretary, has said that this account directly influenced her thinking around the "Don't Say Gay" bill, and other people have reported being radicalized by this account as well. So, it's just very important to look at these big influential online figures shaping our culture and shaping our political life and our, our legislation. Even, I mean. We live in an attention economy. I think hopefully everyone realizes that by now. And so I think it's really important to look at the people that are shaping, you know, shaping this attention. And I did reveal the woman behind the account, um, which has kind of been revealed online already, but I like confirmed it. And so it set off this complete, of course, it resulted in a, a horrible storm of uh, attacks. But but yeah, I just think it's, those stories are really important to do. It's really important to reveal you know, who who these people are that are shaping our public life. Yeah, there, there's so there's an enormous amount to this story. I do want to ask about the sort of the questions of anonymity and attention, because I, sure. I think it's important. And I mean, I as a as a journalist, though not a reporter, it does feel very clear to me there's a, a distinction between reporting out the identity of someone who runs a, an account like this, where that identity is sort of central to understanding the nature of its account and its role in right wing politics. And doxing or for that matter what the account is doing which is bringing a storm of unwanted attention to sort of generally private people at the same time you know i think there's there's also plenty of examples of how newspapers have not handled these dynamics well in the past um including in ways that arguably mirror the dynamics of social media today oh yeah traditional media has a million problems and i don't really you know i would be the first to acknowledge that my whole beat is basically around this sort of new rise in digital media and its ups and downs, right? I think we all agree to traditional media, you know, was also fundamentally broken and remains fundamentally broken in major ways. 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, so I'm I'm curious then how you think about the different factors that are kind of shaping your decision making as someone who is writing about the internet um, for a mainstream publication in tracking down a story like this and in publishing those details. I mean, it's not even a question in this case. I mean, this woman has like her identity was out there. Her name is Haya Raichek, uh, the woman behind the account, and. Yeah, it wasn't even a, I mean, it was not even a question, really. Um, she, I mean, she, her identity was out there online. And there's also multiple Haya Musha right checks. And so I wanted to make it clear which one, you know, she was, I think that it's, it's incredibly newsworthy when you have an account like this. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not even worth, it's the thing is, it's like not even worth going down this debate around privacy in, in, in an individual that has literally been a, on a right wing media tour themselves. I mean, this woman was on Fox News last week. She's given multiple tell all interviews. She has been fundraising a massive amount, building a huge email list. She filed trademarks in naming herself a media company and a news reporter service. Um, she took on funding from the Babylon Bee. Um, she has, you know, collectively millions of followers that are directly impacting political leaders and, and legislation. So, I mean, not only is she a public figure, but I think that there's a huge public interest in scrutinizing, you know, who this woman is that's impacting our legislation and our political discourse. Not to mention the entire premise of her account is you know, taking obscure, small videos from random private people and amplifying them to an audience of millions intent on destroying their lives. So it's a no brainer, in in my opinion, on, on this. I do, you know, I do think very hard about anonymity. I'm someone that believes, actually, that it could be totally useful and, and good in, in a lot of times for media companies to refer to people by online pseudonyms. For instance, I cover Twitch a lot and I, I write about Twitch streamers. I wrote a big piece a couple of years ago about harassment and abuse on Twitch, especially women and trans people get. And, um, you know, we referred to the streamers as their pseudonyms. We obviously didn't publish identifying information on them because of the amount of harassment that they get. In this case, this this woman, you know, this is just so, so different. This is a completely different case. You know, this woman is is going on Tucker Carlson multiple times, right? Like one of the biggest cable news shows in America and impacting life. So I think she herself put herself in the media. She just didn't want her name in the media. Yeah. So one thing that really stood out from the story to me was the role of mainstream media and these broadcast mediums. Because in mm -hmm. some ways, this is a story about social media, but in some ways, it's really not. And it's a story mm -hmm. about the old media. I mean, yeah. you talked about how the libs of TikTok account really didn't get much traction until it was highlighted in mediums that we would think of much more like old-fashioned broadcast. Joe Rogan mm -hmm. on his podcast, Fox News, Glenn Greenwald and his 1.8 million followers. And so I'm curious to what extent you think of this as a social media online story and whether what is here that is different. You know, if if this had been uh, just people scrounging up stories to run on those mediums without the social media aspect, how different would it have been? I mean, this wouldn't happen without social media. I mean, I think this is the whole point is build these these random people building are, are able to build outsized online influence. And it's about it's about online in influence fundamentally and the role that online influence has, whether it's interacting with traditional media, whether it's fundraising, whether it's you know, amplifying content and shaping the discourse, right? The the discourse around LGBTQ people is being shaped 
largely by a small group of people on the internet. And I think we should scrutinize who those people are when we see the rise of you know, all of this anti-LGBTQ hate sort of coming up. It is also, I think it is a story about the traditional media in the sense that like, you just see how transparently um, the right-wing media relies on random anonymous Twitter accounts, for instance, as to, to be their agenda setters. And that just shows how they are following the internet and not the other way around, right? It's it's not just Fox News driving a news cycle. It's that they're actually reacting and and building off this in these internet movements and these internet influencers. And that's why we need to look at those influencers, right? And and their impact and, and what platforms they're using and how they're how they're sort of shaping public discourse around things. Yeah. So what what is it about the account that attracts so much attention? I mean, it seems to be kind of extremely good at finding outrage bait? Like, what is it that is such catnip? Yeah, I think, I think, well, what this person does is scour the internet to take little clips or social media posts from primarily gay and trans people and and members of the LGBTQ community and blow them up and amplify them to millions. And here's what it understands. This account realizes that if they can successfully, you know, misrepresents trans people, especially to the broader community, people are more likely to be amenable to this anti-LGBTQ legislation. So for instance, with something like the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill or the wave of anti-trans laws that we've seen kind of crop up around the country, um, you know, most people don't know trans people, or maybe they know one, or they don't really, you know, interact with with them. There's not many trans people in leadership of companies. They're just, it's a very marginalized group. So their lens of this community is being shaped, their views of this community are being shaped directly by the content that they see on Libs of TikTok. So Libs of TikTok understands that finding very niche people, often people that have mental illness issues or um, are fringe in some way, you know, maybe they're like furries or they're into some subculture. They take those people and then they represent, they may, they say, claim that they're representative of this entire class of people, right? So they did this with the, with the furries. I'm sure you guys know furries, but furries are people that are sort of into cosplaying as uh, animals. Like they, you know, wear like these fur suits, they dress up. It's, it's kind of like a hobby thing. It, the furries have been around on the internet as long as the internet's been around. And it's a wonderful community of people that are just sort of like into this culture. Libs of TikTok took content from furries and falsely started this, this falsely spread this rumor that that schools were installing litter boxes in children's bathrooms for, for kids that identified as cats because there's all these furries out here. And this just goes back to like the trans agenda. This was obviously insane and made up, but it shapes people's views. I mean, you had average people being like, what? You know, what? What is happening? Who are these deviants, right? Impacting our society? This is crazy. They don't realize, one, that's just absolutely not true. Two, that's not even what the furry community is about. And most, not every furry person is trans. Like, And no trans people are identifying as cats. That's not what it's about. So it's just misrepresenting these issues, misrepresenting these people and all, and just kind of providing this red meat content to their right wing audience. It's like they, they are very good at finding content that confirms people's biases and beliefs, right? Which that's the key to internet success is 
finding content that just can confirm someone else's belief. That's like the fastest way to go viral. And so that's what they've done. They've found they've found content that confirms people's regressive thoughts around the LGBTQ community and they just spoon feed it to them all day. I want to go back to the point you made earlier about this account's effect on politics, because I think this is something it has in common with the Algo Speak story, which is, you know, we often think of people creating content or politicians saying things, and then the role of social media starts there and amplifies it or not amplifies it. But actually, there's this much more recursive effect where people are, you know, responding to social media dynamics and social media trends, which seems to me to be the essence of the thing that you're reporting on, but is often missed in the broader conversation. And so just to sort of underline that and ask you how broadly you're seeing this, how much you're seeing politics respond to the dynamics and the attention economy that these platforms are creating. Yeah. I mean, this is how Donald Trump became president. I, I think that the right has been incredibly effective at leveraging online attention to drive messaging, to, you know, promote policy ideas, and also just to get elected. I mean, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, like they wouldn't be a national name if there wasn't the internet. Like, I think, especially on on the right wing sort of world, they're just extremely good at kind of like tapping into things and and, um, engaging with people on the internet, I guess, in a way like that is a little bit more back and forth than just, you know, having this like professionalized profile on there. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious if you feel like you've seen that dynamic develop over time. You mentioned Trump, which is obviously the biggest example. It seems to me like the the feedback loop between the right-wing media and sort of right-wing politicians online has become a lot tighter Um, over the last few years. I'm curious how you've seen it develop. Yeah, I think it's it's this tightly knit machine on the right where it's like, you know, these internet influencers, these powerful right wing like YouTubers or Substackers or whatever have you. And they're completely enmeshed and, and they're feeding content 24-7 to this right wing media ecosystem of which Fox News is kind of like the crown jewel. Like Fox News, you know, take stuff directly from this stuff, but also Newsmax and other stuff. They take stuff directly from the internet influencers. They often engage with these internet influencers. They have them on and then they amplify it to millions and it's, it's blasted out. And it, and the lawmakers are kind of part of all of this. I mean, you see, we've seen the rise of a lot of super online kind of policymakers that are really just catering their content to the internet. They, it's it's not even about serving their constituents a lot of the time. It's like, how can I build my brand on the internet to amplify my political career? And I think that machine is incredibly fast and functional on the right. There's really not a leftist, well, there's really not like a liberal kind of counterbalance to that um, because it's so fragmented. Whereas Whereas the right, it's, you know, somebody, for instance, the groomer discourse around LGBTQ people sort of smearing them as groomers, like that has been driven by this machine. It's it's not even like that's that popular. Most people support LGBTQ rights in this country, but it's this like small and vocal, like powerful group of, of influencers of the right wing media and then of these politicians kind of like feeding off of it that that makes it where we have these policies and suddenly we're having, you know, discussions of whether trans people deserves human rights, like things like that. So I guess the question is, you know, where does this go from here, especially given that we're heading into the midterm season? Things are probably only going to get crazier. I mean, can the feedback loop get any tighter? Um, Are we just going to see more rhetoric like this? Yeah, I mean, 
I think we're just going to see escalating rhetoric. Obviously, we've seen the rise of extremism and, and especially far right extremism um, just really take hold in this country over the past few years. None of that's going to slow down unless we start to really look critically at these systems and kind of counteract this type of thing from happening and from radicalizing people. Um, I mean, look at a movement like QAnon, right? How how much it took off during the pandemic as more and more people got online. The more online average people are and the more time they spend marinating in these platforms and communities that are just sort of reinforcing their worst beliefs. I say worst in terms of like the most bigoted beliefs, maybe I should say. It, like the 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 worse it's going to be. I mean, you're just going to see continued polarization. Um, you're going to see more and more politicians just focused on attention over policy and just posturing to the internet. I think it's led to a huge amount of divisiveness. When people think of social media shaping, you know, our, our political system, a lot of people think, oh, well, people see bad news or fake news on Facebook, and that's what happens. That's not, yes, but that's not really what's what's the issue. It's, I mean, it is an issue, but it's like, we need to talk about how integrated all of this stuff is. Like you were mentioning, the, the, a lot of this stuff would go nowhere if the right-wing media ecosystem, traditional media, didn't pick it up. A lot of this would also go nowhere if the mainstream media, and I mean the, you know, New York Times and, and other kind of papers or um, websites or whatever, like didn't give it credence, right? I mean, look at all of this stuff that's been happening around COVID and the discourse and the way that the right has been able to sort of successfully drive these narratives. They're they're doing that because these outdated legacy media companies are obsessed with this like both sides framing of every issue that doesn't allow them to call out what's really happening and get to the truth and the root of the way that radicalization is happening online. So I think we there's so many broken pieces in this system that we need to fix. Like there's no way for like social media companies to moderate themselves out of this situation because it's so much bigger than the social media platforms themselves and these online influencers themselves. It's, it's also, this whole system is also being propped up by the legacy media. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And we've spoken a lot today. This conversation has really centered around the negative aspects of social media. But I think one of the things that really distinguishes your reporting from a lot of the reporting that we're talking about in the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, at least, and you know other major outlets, not to single out too, like the the general mainstream media. I think a lot of it does focus on the negative aspects. But your reporting, I think, shows a lot of understanding and appreciation of some of the really positive aspects of social media and the joyfulness and the playfulness that can exist. And so I'm curious to hear you talk about that a little bit. More more and ask you, you know, without being reductionist and ask you like internet good, internet bad, um, what you think of more broadly, like, is this just something that's inevitable and we need to accept? Or do you think that this can have a really positive force as well? No, undeniably technology, the, the technology can be used to make the world better. And I think that is the path to the future is, is leveraging technology to build a better world. Like I'm definitely a techno optimist in a lot of ways. I, I love, I mean, I, I think the power of the internet is to connect people and connect people in, in new ways. And that's amazing. We shouldn't lose that. Like, it's so good. I always say like, my life is so much better with all of this technology that we have than if we didn't have it. Right. A lot of the stuff that we're seeing now, all of these broken systems, it was actually broken way worse 30 years ago. We just, you know, 
weren't aware of it a lot of times because we were we were stuck in this legacy media ecosystem where a few gatekeepers had had a lot of power. Obviously, now we're seeing a lot of those gatekeepers um, disrupted by by the internet, and I think we just need to be very intentional about kind of what we criticize and how we criticize these platforms or these systems so that we can fix it and build something better. Like the answer is not to like to stay offline forever or like, you know, take down, take down like every tech company. It's like, we, we can focus on just building smarter and better systems. And and part of that is just being very clear about the motivations behind bad faith actors and, and the ways that people weaponize these platforms. I think it's also really important to, build a system that's inclusive and not completely dominated by a few Silicon Valley megalomaniacs. Um, I think like there's a lot of amazing, brilliant, smart people in Silicon Valley and and elsewhere just around the country or the world that want to build amazing new types of technology. But we're in this system where a a few people in and a few kind of venture capitalists or Silicon Valley CEOs have outsized power over the technology that we use and the way that we engage with it and and how and so I think that we should question that as well but but you know overall I think we don't want to we don't want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater as they say or whatever like I'm very I mean I spend so much time online and there's there's good and bad there's no right answer I think some days it feels worse than others but I just think of my life before the internet and I just, I'm like, God, I don't want to go back to that. I guess some people look at that wistfully at not, yeah, not me. On that note, Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. And you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This coming Thursday, April 28th, an expert panel will be discussing reform of the Electoral Count Act, which governs how electoral votes are counted in each presidential election. The podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>